You are listening to the Signal to Noise podcast on the Pro Sound Web Podcast Network, sponsored by Audix. Hear what you've been missing. Audix is proud to introduce the new line of dynamic closed-back headphones designed for audio professionals and audiophiles to deliver the most accurate sound possible. I wish I could break free Back to where I'm supposed to be Welcome back to the Signal to Noise podcast. Kyle Turnside, you've been holding out on us. I didn't know you skateboarded, dude. Really? That's yeah. crazy. I thought that was kind of like common knowledge that I do everything a teenager possibly does. <laughs> <laughs> You're ripping some cool moves, man. I was impressed. I'm not going to lie. Um, yeah, I didn't break anything. It's it's fun. Like, um, you... I think that that's, that's now like the, <laughs> the determinator of success. It is. <laughs> no injuries. It, it, if you walk away and you can still drive your daughter back home afterward <laughs> and not get in an Epsom salt bath, you're good. You're doing okay. <laughs> At 48, bro. Like I played hey, soccer and I skateboard still. And, and I brought my bike too, which was a bad idea, but it was so fun. So far, I, I respect it, dude. I respect it. Um, so our our guest this episode, uh, we've had some long bios on this show before, but this is this might be up there. You know, uh, he's he's a professor of entertainment technology at New York City College of Technology, also known as City Tech. Um, he does a ton of freelance stuff. He has a book that's the industry standard called Show Networks and Control Systems. He's published a couple editions of that. He's recently released um, a new a new book uh which uh stick around because y'all gonna have an opportunity to win a copy for yourself it's pretty cool stuff um i've read it i hear that the uh the copy editor is a very handsome dude um so we'll see let's see about that um he's a subject matter expert uh for the entertainment electrician certification test through the etcp program which i think a lot of us are familiar with uh he's done all sorts of theatrical design systems consulting sound system tuning all that stuff he's a visiting professor the l school of drama for 14 years and you know what you can go check out his whole bio on the website but i don't want to burn the whole episode talking about him ladies and gentlemen please welcome to the show my friend john huntington yeah welcome I, I think he actually me. has uh, more hours in the day than a normal person has. <laughs> just very well organized. That's the that's the that's the key. Uh, see, that's where I fail. I fail miserably at organization. That's it. It it's my downfall. It really is. I think uh, you know what. Actually, there's so much to jump into here, but I I, I want to start a little bit out in left field, John. I want to talk about Gravesend, man. Can you? Tell us about that, because that's like the coolest thing in the world to yeah. me. Yeah. And uh, so the it, at school, we've done this haunted house now. This, of course, is the first year we haven't done it in 20 years. And uh, it started out as like, hey, let's uh, take a bunch of stuff off the shelf. And it's a good opportunity to get the students to like plug things together and all that. And then it just sort of like grew and grew and grew. And there was some weird inflection point like eight or 10 years ago where all of a sudden it got started getting really popular and hit some kind of critical mass. And in recent years, we've had 6,000 people a year come through. Incredible. Um, so it's evolved from this thing that was kind of casual and we would have like hours where nobody showed up to now, at least last year, we just get this constant throng of people through. And what's interesting for us, it's a, you know, we have some years we have a hundred students working on it at once in various roles. So it's sort of it's become kind of all consuming. Um, but the basic idea is it's a you know walk through haunted attraction. But what's interesting is the whole thing has uh, sensors that the uh, audience members are triggering everything going through. And then about six, seven, eight years ago, I moved all the entire back end of the whole thing onto a managed network. And so we were using Dante, I think I'm so bad at dates, but I have it all written down on my blog and everything. Um, but uh, seven, eight years ago, we started using Dante, and uh, that's been that's sort of the backbone of the audio system now. And then also, so the same network carries all the audio via Dante, surveillance cameras, uh, control signals, lighting data, all in one managed network, which is not, and we can talk about that in the book, we can talk about it here, but it's not always the best approach to do things because it does make it a little more complicated. But in our case, it, it's uh, worked really well. Um, and it's all played back 
from uh, QAB. So we, our, our machines now are so old that last year we had to split it onto two machines because uh, it just couldn't handle it. <laughs> They're running, you know, we would hit some magic number on these old Macs that we have, like 43 queues or something, and then it would start losing samples and or losing, you know, processing errors and stuff. So last year we split it onto like one machine for the basement and one for the main uh, area, and uh, that seemed to work pretty well. Oh, and I just one other unique thing that I, I we don't publicize it, but it's not a secret for anybody who's gone through has seen this. But the entire time you go through, you've been being watched on infrared, you know, video cameras, all POE cameras on the network. But the thing that we don't publicize, but everybody figures out, is that uh, as you've gone through, uh, everybody who's already been through is watching you go through. So we project all the cameras, except for some of the backstage ones, up on a big screen in the theater. And uh, our artistic director, Todd Robbins, who's just a great guy, he told me a few years ago, um, hey, you know, that idea is 100 years old. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Because it just started when I was like, oh, let's throw a camera in there. And then a student suggested, how about instant replay? So I added a TiVo to the system like 12 years ago or whatever. And now it's all, you know, network, DVR, uh, surveillance system. But in Coney Island, uh, when you exited the steeplechase ride, uh, there was an area called the blowhole theater and the people who just got off the ride would be tormented by a little person and a clown and ladies dresses <laughs> would be blown up and all that kind of stuff. And there's video on, online of this. You can see it. And the, uh, then, so what was interesting, then they had bleachers set up. So people that came through who had been tormented themselves now would sit for hours and watch other people get tormented. So that's sort of like we reinvented that without knowing it. It's um, kind of like our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I missed that part when I came in. So. I, I uh, you know, I have to say, I haven't, I, I thought this was going to be the year that I finally got to go down and go through the whole thing. And of course, you know, it wasn't, but I have seen, you did give us a brief demo um, two years ago, John, when we were down there doing the smart training and this is, it's really cool stuff, man. And I think like you could not have come up with a better way to make students immediately interested in what, <laughs> what you're teaching, man. It's so cool. I, I wish we could take credit for planning that out, but it just sort of happened, uh, over 20 years, right? We just kept building more and more and more. And then about, I guess about 10 years ago, we kind of, we used to have the students design it, but it just started getting too big for people that are just starting out. And then so we kind of redesigned it. The faculty redesigned it about 10 years ago. And then we have uh, Sam Kuznets now as our sound designer, uh, who's also the product manager at QLab. So that makes my life easy. Because I'm like, here's Sam. Here's, you, know, you can fix this. And um, uh, now so we kind of we, we put the same show back in every year because it's just such a massive project. But each year we clean something up, add, you know, reprogram an area. Uh, and we had a, you know, that was all in the plans for this year. And we hope uh, to be doing all that next spring for the following fall. But yeah, we're really, it was, and we're doing a, the students are actually doing a virtual uh, version this year. If people want to participate, it's actually, we, we couldn't get it done in time for Halloween. So we're doing it starting in the next week. And it's like a virtual escape room that's all run through StreamYard and Discord and all this stuff. And uh, the students have been doing a really good job on it. It's not, it's not like sort of the normal level of production that we do for the haunted house which is just so massive but it's a great opportunity for the students to get to do all this online stuff so well that's i everyone i encourage everyone to check that out because it's 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 like i said it's really fun it's really cool and uh, john your book goes through a lot of the the detailed specs for how you build the system for the haunted house and that was one of those things where when i looked at your book you know obviously i gravitated towards the audio chapters because that's my world and i read them and then i'm like you know i actually ended up reading the whole thing <laughs> like the video stuff and the automation itself it was really interesting to me so um yeah i think you know as i pointed out john is is sort of like the industry authority on all things networked and show controlled so so kyle chris if you have any <laughs> any pressing automation networked audio questions this is your chance man get it out <laughs> i i just think it's really cool that he took a a a childhood thing that everyone wants to do, you know, setting it up in their front yard. And I see a lot of audio guys and lighting guys doing this at home, you know, during the holidays is setting up a show at their house and mm -hmm. being able to do this for your students and setting up a haunt is super cool. I mean, how many uh, industry professionals from like haunted attractions have got a hold of you because of this cool little project that you guys set up? 
Yeah, we actually, well, there's a themed entertainment association, which is, you know, the people that uh, mostly, you know, in Orlando and in LA and, you know, based around Disney Universal and those kind of things. But there's a New York chapter of that. And we've actually hosted them a couple of times, you know, had networking events and, and backstage tour uh, at the Haunted House. So it's gotten some notice for that. And I actually went two years ago, there, I think it was, there's actually a, a haunt convention this is actually big business now around the country. And um, that was pretty fascinating. And But most of them, uh, and not to like boast too much, but ours, you know, we have kind of an unfair advantage because we, we have all this gear. Uh, so ours is, you know, way, way more high tech than the average one, um, you know, because we have, we're running like, you know, a Grand MA for lighting and things like that, which the average homeowner wouldn't be able to afford. But there's some amazing stuff out there, but it's a really big thing. But the biggest issue for us is that it just gives the, the students an opportunity to work on something, to run a crew, to install a really massive system. And also now there's, it's going to be a little weird coming out of the pandemic, but there's been a tradition now where students like they start out, you know, coiling cable. And then by a couple years later, they're running the whole crew. And that way it's such a massive project that, that way they sort of get to build up to it rather than just being jumping in and kind of being overwhelmed with it. And so that's what, you know, I, like I said, and it also, it's also just a good project to work on where there's a whole lot of people and you're like fighting for ladders and stuff like that, uh, which is something they need to get used to, you know, in the, in the uh, professional world. Fighting for Ladders is the name of Kyle's metal band. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many ideas. I have so many ideas. No, but you know what makes you think of, I mean, Chris, you say all the time, right? You can't teach give a shit. That's like your thing. Yeah. But this is, this might be, I think you can probably, um, you can definitely expose students to some stuff that like, like hey, hey, here's why you should give a shit. You know, you can kind of, you know, show them like why this could be interesting if you decide to give a shit. Hey, so this is a great spend, way to do it, man. Do you want to spend hours cutting quarter inch tape or run a haunt with me <laughs> yeah um all right so kyle I'll, I'll throw it over to you man i know you had some stuff you were looking at it at, at john's accomplishments there you had some questions so throw yeah. it out there dude and and the one just because um i'm a resident and even before i moved back to st louis um we had visited city museum um oh, yeah. several times because it is an insane playground that yeah. they have built here uh, out of an old factory and the guy who did it was an insane artist and i kind of want to know what your uh role was here and what your take was when you first walked in that building oh yeah i'm just, I'm just a, a visitor and i always heard about the place and i went in there I, oh, I was actually there for the haunt show like a couple years ago and I went in that place and it, I think it was a school holiday or something. So I, I was a little bit overwhelmed with the amount of people in there, but that place is unbelievable. And if anybody's anywhere near St. Louis, you got to get some time to go see that thing. And I, I'm, I'm just a huge fan of like weird art projects like that. If anybody, do y'all know about um, Meow Wolf down in uh, uh, Santa Fe? Whoa, what's that? Oh, all right. Well, that's also, so I have a <laughs> bunch of pictures of City Museum on my blog, but uh, also on my blog, if you just search Meow Wolf, uh, it was actually funded, uh, the primary funder is George, I never pronounced his name, but George R.R. R. Martin is a two R's, is that right? Um, the guy who wrote Game of Thrones and all that. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he lives down there and he funded this crazy art group that took over an old uh, bowling alley and it's just this, you know, like truly immersive thing that you walk in. And I've been to a million of these things. I mean, I go to every one that I can because I love all those things, you know, Sleep No More and all that. I saw that when I was still in Boston, even before it came to New York. And the um, this one well, was so insane that I actually had to like leave the building and look at the building from the outside to understand the parts that I had missed. And then I went back in and said, <laughs> oh, this corner, that's what, because you have to climb through the refrigerator to get into this area and all this stuff. Um, I can't even do it justice by explaining it, but you have to see it. But the city museum is very much in the same vein. Um, and then the, and it's sad it didn't happen this year too, but I went last year for the first time. Uh, there's an amazing band in New York uh, uh, called Mother Feather. It's one of my favorites. And they're just incredible, you know, incredible people and just the really nice people. And they've been playing the last couple of years at this thing called Theater Bazaar in Detroit. And it is, I went last year and it's uh, one of the most, I mean, I've been to thousands of shows and I, it's one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. And of course I have lots of photos on that 
You have to that get like to the best way to, to your camera there. Sorry. That that has to be the best way to push your students too. Is is your eclectic idea of things that you've seen and witnessed and bringing that back to your classroom? It it's got to be way more engaging than the normal textbook way of doing things. Yeah, and also you know most of our faculty have come out of a theatrical background because I went to you know Ithaca College in the theater. This is in the eighties, and then Yale Drama School. You know this is also in the eighties. You know, and that's actually where I met Jamie Anderson. He and I were students there together. Um, And uh, back then, like sound was part of the technical department and all that kind of stuff. It's a very different time. Um, But the uh, so, yeah, the all that stuff, you know, the traditional theater is sort of the standard model for teaching this stuff. But we we are an entertainment technology department, so we don't um, focus on that. We do typically like one theatrical production a year. But we also do a lot of work with variety artists. So I have a lot of friends in the uh, circus world from that. And, oh, that's also talking about the City Museum. I do a weekly, um, uh, I support a weekly live Zoom with uh, the Bindlestiff Family Circus that's based out of New York. And we get performers, you know, every Monday night. We I think we've got every continent now except Antarctica. And the uh, I just do, like, QAB playback and help with some of the backstage stuff. And uh, like our host's uh, internet went out in the middle of the show this week. So that, I, that was the first time I got to put the technical difficulty slide up. Um, <laughs> yeah. But we had a, a live uh, acrobat from the City Museum uh, circus area this week. That's why I was, I was thinking about that as well. But yeah, so those things, I think, and our students are very unconventional as well. We, you know, these are mostly kids that grew up in the city or first or second generation immigrants. And they don't have, you know, I feel very privileged with my background, uh, you know, what I was able to do in high school and things like that. And our students don't have that exposure, but they catch the show bug, you know, the same way that all of us did. Uh, They get a little later than I did, but they are just as passionate about it as anybody else. You know, they they just got a little bit of a later start. And they, um, uh, our students now, there's been a lot of them that end up in uh, like concert industry. There's a lot that are doing like, you know, wireless mics and uh, comm around the city that there seems to be like pockets of them. Once one gets in, they they bring a bunch of others in. And uh, a lot of work in corporate staging and concert tours. We have a few that work in traditional theater, um, but that's sort of been the model and that's the bulk of the academic education is from that side. And that's another thing I wrote, I guess, two years ago, I was on sabbatical and it came out about a year ago. Now I wrote two articles sort of about evolution of technology. Of course, it's on my blog also. Um, and one is about, so the idea, and I can, I, if I'm rambling, let me know, I could talk about this stuff for an hour, but the idea that, um, right around the time that I got out of college in 1985, I think we sort of underwent sort of an inflection point in the technological development. And then around 2010, I mean, the date doesn't really matter as much as the idea. Um, I think things really kind of stabilized. Uh, And of course, there's more innovation, more development, but we've kind of solved most of the basic problems. And, uh, you know, I had, uh, so I wrote a couple articles. I did a whole timeline documenting that. And I wrote two articles sort of exploring that idea. And I have some like great quotes from like Bob McCarthy and stuff in there. Uh, about that whole idea. Um, but I think that that's sort of stabilized now, which is really, and I honestly don't remember how I got on that point, but the um, that kind of stabilized gives us sort of a mature pat- platform to work from now. And the, we have, you know, I think now we can focus on telling stories more in the industry rather than inventing the tools. I think, you know, and if you look at, I don't know how old you guys are, but the speakers that I work with. Ca- and Cal- old. <laughs> probably the oldest one here, I would guess, but when I got out of college, you know, most speakers were terrible and there was a few that were okay. And, you know, mixers, everything was analog and all that. And now, you know, of course we had just have all these amazing, uh, you know, products in our industry and what you can get for even the, you know, you go buy some cheap speakers today, they're still pretty good, you know, and that's, that's been a dramatic change in the industry. So I've sort of lived through that whole time as well. So rest in peace. I need to ask the question because I think a lot of our listeners have probably walked by it. And I lived in Vegas for about seven years. Um, The Buccaneer Bay at Treasure Island, which I thought was one of the most brilliant ideas. It was like a theatrical program that anybody could walk down the street and see, you know, two to three times a day. It was different whether it was day or nighttime just because of the vigils and the aspects of it. But 
you uh you helped on that and there was two big ass boats and there was people diving off of them and a, and a ton of really cool control um I was always drawn into it. If the show started, I stopped and watched it. I mean, you know how Vegas people are. Usually once they live there for a while, they don't go to the strip. But that was one of the attractions that I thought was the coolest thing that they could put on it. It wasn't a fire show. It wasn't fountain shooting up to Michael Jackson. It was literally <laughs> like people jumping off of boats that were sinking and raising and moving. And it, it, I thought it was awesome. Yeah, it was uh so that was a Treasure Island Hotel in the that was in the mid nineties. I am terrible at dates, but the mid nineties, if I remember right, um, where Vegas went through its sort of family phase where that was supposed to be like a family friendly casino, which is kind of mm -hmm. a weird idea just in of itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> yeah, sirens are really family friendly. Well the, the sirens was version two, actually. So the original one, and I I found a YouTube video and I stuck it up on my blog. If you just search Treasure Island on my blog, you'll find it. That the original one was just a old school pirate battle with Steve. Steve Wynn um, was the voice of the British commander, and these pirates came around and you know blew up everything, and uh, it was really really fun, and people loved it. And, and uh, then the Sirens was actually sort of version two or three of it, and I remember I was there once. So we built this whole thing. A lot of companies went bankrupt doing it. You know, it's one of those like classic kind of things. And again, those days, things were like being built from scratch. And I was working for production arts uh, lighting back in those days. So I was there sort of, you know, overseeing some of the technical installation. And then we had the program. You know, I think it was a, a Richmond uh, stage manager running on an Amiga that would take time code in to fire the whiteboard, Whoa. you know. So and these days now, the whiteboard just takes time codes. It's not even an issue um a commodore then, amiga really oh yeah yeah that was the early i mean that was the um like uh, video toaster and all that when that came yeah. out that was you know i we can curse on this right that, yeah. Yeah, that, that was that's my nature but i'm like i just feel like at the hold back a little bit but yeah that thing was the shit you know in those days for doing that um but and then the sirens one is kind of funny. I was there years later. So the Buccaneer Bay ran, I don't remember, let's say five years or something. Then they put the sirens of TI in there. And uh, my uh, girlfriend at the time and I were there for some conference. And she was a violinist at the Metron Opera. And I, I worked there for a bunch of years. And uh, we both watched that show because the original one, like people were cheering and it was a lot of fun. And everybody would go in the casino, buy a drink, gamble, whatever. And the Siren Show, we were there like the early days of that. And the uh, we both noticed, or she noticed at the end, like that the, you know, we were like, well, we're New York snobs. We're, you know, this isn't, show isn't for us. But she said, hey, look around. Like everybody's like looking at their feet and shuffling away. <laughs> like it wasn't like the way it was, where it's just like, hey, this is fantastic. Let's go in. It's so much fun. And it just became, it became very kind of corporatized. And now it's, uh, the last time I was there, it was a senior frog uh had replaced yeah. the whole thing. It's a Marvel Universe place now. And oh, is it? Walgreens, wow. I think. Oh, yeah, there's a Walgreens. <laughs> sick. Sick, bro. You turned a, a free show people could walk by into a Walgreens. Way to go. <laughs> Way to go, Vegas. John, do you get to like, I mean, it's, it's just kind of like I think when I was like 10, right, I'd go over once a year, there would be a, there was a, a school down the street from my house and they'd bring in a big festival and have all the rides and me, like I would go on my bike and I'd watch them setting up the rides. And I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. when I was 10 and like, you get to do this yeah. for a job. I mean, do you ever be like, man, this is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. I've been very fortunate. And, um, but, and also like I always tell the students, like, you know, and I, you guys all know this, but it's like passion. If you're really passionate about this stuff, uh, you can, you can get to do it. And it's really, it's really exciting. I mean, my sort of, drawback and i guess advantage in some other ways is i'm interested in so many different things that that's drawn me into all kinds of other areas you know i think in at my core i'm a sound person just because that's the way my brain's wired you know but uh the the control side of everything is always fascinating to me and machinery and all that and and uh and i was really lucky because um on my college field trip and you know to we came down to new york to here to the city uh, and we saw like Sunday in the park with George and a bunch of other shows. And we kind of, a uh, bunch of us talked our way backstage, you know, past the prop man mopping up at the end of the show. And, uh, 
there is this chromalume in that show, which is all lasers. And it was, it turns out it was the first projection mapping. Uh, that's what brand the sky ended up working for claims. It was all done on film and we had just been building some weird machines and college and stuff. And I was like, wow, this is it. I want to work for these guys. And then I just, uh, we, I wrote their phone number down off of the machine backstage. And then I just called them every <laughs> week. Uh, like, Hey, you know, and I sent my resume, did all this stuff. And then I was literally one week before graduation. I was like, uh, Hey, uh, all right, I'm going to call one more time and I'm giving up. And then I didn't know what I was going to do. I was going to move back to Maryland you know, with my parents or whatever. And, uh, somebody different answered the phone and they said, Hey, can you weld? And I, in those days I, I was decent welder. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, can you start tomorrow? I'm like what? <laughs> I have to graduate. <laughs> um, so I waited, I graduated Saturday, moved Sunday, started work Monday. And the, that was amazing because that was sort of the end of the mechanical film effects days. So we were building all these crazy machines and doing sound systems and all this stuff. This is the mid, you know, mid eighties. And we built projectors for Pink Floyd and for Roger Waters, uh, film projectors and for Laurie Anderson, all these people. And I just worked with all these like real geniuses. And I was just like the kid that I was just hired to weld. And then, um, you know, at lunchtime, I would go over and talk to the control people. They're doing all this wiring. Like, what is this? What's this thing? And then when they needed somebody else, they, they, you know, they brought me into the wiring stuff. And then I ended up staying there for three years until I went to grad school. So it was, uh, but I was very lucky and I'm actually in some feature films like operating robots and lasers and stuff. Um, and that sort of just set the tone for the whole the rest of my career like that. And just also the approach in those days in particular, you know, we were running, I have the old pictures of it. Like we were running PDP 11s and stuff. Uh, these giant mini computers, the size of a refrigerator that my phone is 10 times more powerful than that. But we were using that to control motion control cameras and stuff. Um, and I just was really fortunate in that time. I was like, kind of got indoctrinated and in all that thing. And also just that way of thinking like, and I remember this guy, so it's Brand Farron as the guy that I work for. And I remember him coming to a convention and saying, hey, you know, don't look in the, if you're looking at lighting, don't look in the like Roscoe catalog, look in the train engineering catalog, look for other solutions for things. And I think that's what I've just been doing the rest of my career, right? You know, even this networking stuff, we didn't invent any of this stuff. We, we but I've, I've taken like the Cisco training and things like that, kind of adapting it into what we're doing. And now I think, again, part of the maturity is like is so many of the things that we use, like networking stuff now, we have solutions that are made for our industry that really have done that and take the, you know, this thing that wasn't designed by us and package it in a way that makes it easy for end users to use the people that want to mix a show and don't want to be, you know, worry about Cisco, you know, CCNA certification or something. They just want to get their sound out of their system. And that's, uh, you know, that's been a really, again, I feel very lucky. I kind of, my career went through that evolution because that, that was just always fascinating to me. So you, you alluded to, you know, the, the core, you have, you know, a passion for this, yet you also have just a, you know, a technical mindset. Have you thought about, um, in the process of either yourself or just in the industry, what has fueled things the most, um, in terms of of progression in other words was it just a pure passion and so hey i'm gonna go do this or hey there's a problem i'm gonna go solve it um how does that that technical and passion side intertwine through the years for you oh yeah that's a good question i think and this is something you know uh, having taught now for 20 more than 20 years that i think you just have that or you don't again it's from around the passion i think you can be taught some sort of technical you know uh, tools or procedures or whatever. To, but I think, I think the core of what we all do is kind of a, uh, at least from the technical side, is kind of a problem solving idea. And, uh, and I'm doing to, to me and me just being impatient. Like I'm not, I'm not good at sitting in a recording studio or really, I'm not a great mixer. Like I can do it, but I really am so easily distracted. Uh, that I'm much better at being a system engineer and going, hey, what's that noise from the speaker over there? Rather than like, oh, I really better focus in on this kick drum right now. Like, I'm not good at that. Um, but I even, but I think it's the idea that problem solving is something we do for every kind of show. And I think even you can look at most sound systems from that, like, hey, I'm trying to deliver sound to this part of the audience. Like, how do I solve that problem? And that, you know, now we just have so much better tools than we used to. 
uh, that that job is a little, I don't want to say easy, but it's a little more straightforward and the procedures are a little more, they're, you know, defined is the wrong word, but there are a set of procedures that didn't even exist in the eighties. And, uh, but I think the problem solving thing to me is just, that's, what's been interesting and wanting to do like interesting stuff. So I've been actually like volunteering. I was emailing this morning about it, but there's uh, like uh, whales have now returned to the waters off of uh, New York. And uh, so uh, we can't publicize it, but I can say that I'm doing it. But we have mounted uh, remote cameras on an uninhabited island uh, in the city. And I've just, I got to go out on a boat and land on this island you're not allowed to land on without a permit and uh, working on those kind of things. And then also with that group, um, the, the leader of that group is like an all-volunteer citizen science thing. Um, he had an idea about the, the whales around here uh, eat this fish called bunker, and he's kind of wondering how do they locate the bunker. And he was thinking, well, maybe they hear something. So we, and I was talking to him, and he was working with these like PhD marine biologists. I'm like, that's great. Keep doing that. But how about I go buy a hydrophone and we'll go get a boat and go stick it in the water. So we got to do that the last few years. And it's like insane. If you're used to sound in the air, when you start listening to sound underwater, like all the transmission is crazy. And I was just sitting there in headphones going, what is that noise? And it turned out it's like a boat, like two miles away that you can just barely see, but you can hear the guy like slapping the waves and the prop going in and out of the water and stuff like that. Um, so I think a lot of all, I, I feel like all I've ever done in my life is like take things from one area and kind of apply them in another, um, you know, and, and sort of bring and bring them back from one side to another. It's sort of, that's like, that's just been my, you know, passion again, because I'm interested in so many different things. Um, but I think in, you know, in the end, there's still, I'm sure you guys all agree with this. There's just nothing like working on a show and being there, you know, when a big audience comes in and when, and when I worked at the Met and the Pharmonic and, um, we did, you know, we're doing outdoor shows in Central Park and stuff where, we, again, we got to really, you know, live through the evolution of modern line arrays and stuff during that time. Um, and just being there, you know, with 50,000 people around and, you know, uh, doing the speaker systems and stuff for that. I mean, there's just that's just such a cool feeling like that. Um, you know, it's way more interesting than like solving problems in a factory somewhere, you know, having that. And just also, like I said, like just having a passion for like interesting art and stuff i think but i think there's so much room in our it's so much more professional now than it was in the 80s and our industry is much bigger but the um the i i think there's still lots of room for people that have that kind of passion i mean i think those are the and there's also a lot of room for people that if they're just if they they're not that they don't have that you know many different interests but they love music or whatever and they're really good mixer you know things like that i mean there's there's you know i think our industry and of course right now we're you know, I think everything's on hold, but, uh, uh, I haven't met anybody that thinks that our industry is over. It's just on hold. I think it's all coming back, you know, bigger and better than ever. So again, sorry, another rambling, uh, circuitous. Uh, no, that's what we do here, man. That's the whole, that's the whole point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would, I would love to be a student of yours because I've, I'm sure that you have one that surprises you every year. I'm sure you have one that just blows your mind with stuff that they, start to think about from the way that you've taught them. Yeah. And I think the, um, you know, I always feel like, you know, I'm just certainly helping to lead people a little bit. I think it's really, it's, it's their, if they have any success, whatever, it's their passion, their drive that makes that happen. But yeah, I think my, our students are, you know, the, the, the shit they go through in their lives in general, um, you know, compared to my, like, you know, relatively, you know, we certainly weren't wealthy growing up, but I, you know, my parents paid for college. I didn't have to worry about it and stuff like that. And to see what our students are doing where they're, you know, taking care of their grandmother and working full time at Walgreens and doing everything else and coming into school, you know, and, and they're in a good mood and working hard. Like that's just inspiring every day. And we had like years ago, we had one student who was just always, you know, every show always, you know, excited there, doing great, got an A in every class and just sort of disappeared on a, during a, like at a show and missed the show call. And we're like, what's happening? You know, so we get in touch with her. It turns out that her sister was in Rikers Island and that she had to go take care of her. And that, you know, it turned, she was actually like waitressing to pay for her whole family. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, like the, you know, I can't complain about anything. And so when you see these students that come from such uh, difficult circumstances, 
um, you know, get the passion and, and we're, you know, succeed in our industry. It's, it's really inspiring. You also have like, I mean, the, there's this line from Fight Club, which is in general is not a great place to pull your like, you know, life <laughs> philosophy from, but there's right. a line that I really like, <laughs> which is you decide your own level of involvement. And I, I mean, I, I've observed this when you have a student who's really above and beyond and really kind of really interested in something. I mean, you support him and you really, you really go that extra mile to back him up. I'm, you had a, 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 your student, Balin, who oh. did a really cool project about, um, you know, this thing that everyone's heard repeated over and over again, this console's preamps are crappy and this console's preamps are amazing. And so he set up a blind test to do it. And you had this big listening test and we published the results on, on ProSound Web. And it was just a really, really cool thing. But what I really liked about that is that you 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 stepped up and you really kind of said, all right, yeah, you want to do this? Let's do it, man. And, and that was just a really cool thing. And I think uh, we all have a lot to learn from that type of thing. Yeah, and that's a great example because this is a student, uh, uh, Balin, who I think he came from China when he was eight or something, you know, speaks both dialects or the, I'm, not both, I'm so ignorant about it, but I think the two main dialects of Chinese and English, you know, which is two more languages than I can speak, um, <laughs> maybe two and a half. Um, and uh, he was in the like the computer department of our school and just I think he saw the haunted house or something. The haunted house is one of our big recruiting things now. And he either saw that or just said, oh, that looks interesting, kind of stumbled into our department. And he's he's amazing. Like, he is so passionate. Like, he came in. And again, he came in uh, around his job, his work schedule, whatever. In the summer, like two, three years ago, we went through all the haunted house systems and, like, really document everything, cleaned it out. And he worked with me for, like, two or three days on that. And then it was uh, that particular project was an idea. I had a couple of students that were like working in their church or whatever. And they uh, were like, oh, yeah, this preamp, you know, this mixer sounded so warm. And I'm like, all right, we'll prove it. You know, so the, um, and they they started on it, but just they didn't sort of finish it. And so Balin's looking for a senior project. I'm like, how about that? And again, he took the ball and ran with it. And of course, being an academic bureaucracy, we had to get uh, research board approval and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, in the end, he we actually had a student that had a a, a um, uh, Behringer console. What is I'm totally drawing a blank. X32. X32. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So he had an X32. We had a CL5. So we I had a actually a, a sound a great sound mixer a friend of mine uh, Howard Rappaport, who's the house guy at Arlene's Grocery, who's mixed literally thousands and thousands of bands because he does like three a night, and he's also a musician. So I had him come in. Um, and play for us and we recorded that and i was really active in the sort of skeptical movement with james randy and all that back in the you know early 2000s and sort of learned a lot about that and I'm, but i'm a big believer in like you can do something like a double blind test uh without you don't need a phd to do a double blind test and i know michael you do a lot of this stuff too I, oh and i really enjoyed the uh drive-in um measurement thing recently that was really cool so that kind of idea, like, hey, let's just not say, oh, I like the sound of this, but let's measure it. Let's test it. Um, and so, yeah, Balin embraced that, and we did a whole double-blind test. I don't remember how many respondents we had, but it was it was a bunch. It was, you know, 40 or 50, um, and it was difficult. And I learned this long ago because I did some testing, a real, you know, research project on subsonic sound in conjunction with our haunted house like 10 years ago. And uh this kind of stuff. So we use the ABX test method on this project and man, you can deceive yourself so easily because you want that Yamaha console to be a notable, notable difference. And, uh, I'll let people read the results, but the, uh, um, you, everybody has a bias built in, you know, if I paid $50,000 for this thing, I want it, I want it to sound better than the $800 one. And there's in that, but of course that's not the only decision there there's, you know, the construction and build quality and features and all that is very different. But I think in particular, and there's certainly no different, no question that EQ and reverb and things like that will sound different on a, a cheap console and an expensive one. But I think uh, preamps in general, I think are sort of overrated as a, um, you know, as a sound thing. And, if, you know, if people disagree, just test it and find out. Yeah. I mean, it's always funny that we pick probably the most linear component in the entire signal chain. Yeah, and right. we assign that, you know, oh, this why his console sounds better. I'm like, it's probably not that. Um, but I love, you know, I, I love that whole, I mean, that's the tradition, you know, the Ethan Weiner tradition and the Dave Rat tradition of like, well, while you guys are sitting here arguing about it, I'm going to go find out, right? I'm going to answer my own question. 
um, engineering is, is, is a process. It's not something that you sit and learn and watch go by. Like this is the thing that you have to be involved in. And I think that's an area where our field, I mean, you're really talking about how recently it's really come into, you know, being a developed kind of foundation of engineering in our field. Um, that's something that we're at a big disadvantage when we talk about versus mechanical engineering or, you know, the, a lot of the other more disciplined fields of engineering. Um, we, we still get caught up on making profoundly unscientific statements. <laughs> and I think um, it's been a big thing for me to say, like, look, you don't need a lab quality test in order to learn something useful. Um, and, and that's because our, our, you know, we, we have we have shows in arenas with stuff bouncing off the walls. And like we if we're looking for lab conditions, we're we're never going to get them. Um, so so I think it's really, really important uh, to sort of just say, hey, you know, yeah, there's some variables on this test. There's always some variables in this test, but that doesn't mean that we can't learn something from it. And I, that's just been such a big part of my whole philosophy. And it's really cool to see. I mean, I know you've done be, besides this preamp experiment, you've done a lot of stuff like that. And I think that's that's really important stuff, you know. Yeah, and we did one uh, back when I seemed to have more free time. I don't know what what happened, but the um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, there was an article talking about how somebody had used uh, you know star quad cables on a tour and how it changed everything, and there was like dramatic improvement and all this stuff. I'm like, okay, I didn't really that didn't make sense to me unless you're operating in some crazy you know, heavy duty electromagnetic magnetic environment. Like how could that be? So I did a, that's how I, that was like the first ABX test I did. Um, and I kind of did it outside the school and I forgot to ask for approval. So, which I should have asked Whoops. for it. Um, but it, <laughs> I think the statute of limitations has expired now, but it wasn't like a student doing or anything. Um, yeah. And we did a test, a bunch of people tried it. No one, there was no, you know, there's no statistical, uh, no one, there was no, you know, statistically significant difference in it. And I, I'm terrible at math. So I had to get some people better at statistics to evaluate this than me, but follow the procedures, didn't find anything. Um, and then it was funny because the, the, the person who coincidentally on that one, I was actually collecting some identifiable information, which you're not allowed to do typically in a school environment. Um, but the, um, person who got the most so the way it works is you have 10 unknowns you you have an a and a b that you can listen to all you want and then you're given 10 x's and if it's a noticeable uh improvement in the sound then you should be able should be, be able to get it like six eight eight at last six or eight times get it right right you should be able to guess the correct one like eight times out of ten if it's a noticeable difference so the the only person who got above like you know eight out of, or I think above over seven, I think she got eight out of 10. Turned out I knew who it was and it was a former student of mine with, with pretty bad hearing damage. So either she has some like supernatural ability <laughs> hearing damage, or she just got lucky, you know, that's the more likely outcome. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, you don't have to do, I think the, the big point from that, especially now we have measurement tools like smart and so on, but also you don't even need to do that. Like I had a student once who wanted to, position a, a subwoofer in a certain position in their theater and i'm like okay and he's like well this will be better than that i'm like all right well how do you know it's like i don't know and so i here, here's what we're gonna do we're gonna you know turn the lights out uh you're gonna leave i'm gonna move it into one position or the other and then we're gonna come back in you won't be able you won't know what it is and i you to make a double blind i should also leave the room but in that case i just you know i didn't say anything and i had them listen and i'm like okay leave again come back and uh you know you, you won't know what you're listening to, but you can pick one. And it turned out his idea was right. But that's something you can do pretty easily uh, to do a, you know, a blind or double blind test without, you know, test procedures and and surveys and all that. You can just try it, but you have to remove your own bias from the the uh, uh, you know from the the equation, basically. I love that. I mean, it's like it's one of those things that we, everyone will acknowledge the fact that we all have biases as listeners, but I feel like a lot of sound people feel like, well, I know about that bias. So like, I'm immune from it. Like you're not immune from it. You're probably more, you're more likely to fall prey to it. Um, so the blind test, I mean, Ethan Weiner's null test experiment, those types of things are just so important. Um, and, and, you know, before we, before Kyle gets to the nasty grams, like no one is oh, saying, man. no one is saying, don't listen to your ears. No one is saying, oh, don't no. trust what you're hearing. No you know, it's not about that. It's about, 
you know, I think anyone who reads my writing, they know I'm very careful to separate when I'm saying, you know, to me, it sounded like I'm very careful to separate my, my perceptions and opinions versus what I'm claiming as a factual statement. And that's all I'm saying is if, you know, we should be careful when we make a factual statement that it's actually true. <laughs> and I think the key part of it is absolutely, we want you to listen to your ears. You just want to know, you know, uh, remove the, just set up a simple procedure. So you really don't know what you're listening to, but if it's a real effect in the end, that's all that matters is you like the mm-hmm. way it sounds, you know? And again, it's not, is there, we we're talking about preamps, like, is there some, you know, we did it with the same mic and all that kind of stuff, but is there some interaction with the mic that, in a preamp that makes some sound that you like, great, that's fine. But to say this console is better than that, uh, you know, warmer, whatever these sort of vague terms that you can't measure, uh, you know, you should just just remove it out. So you, you it, it is all about all about listening. And when I used to do the um, parks tour, you know, in the early days with Sim and everything, we would sometimes we bring in somebody and they would just stay, you know, in front of the the analyzer and not walk around. Uh, and I always thought that was a bad idea where me, like I, I, and I did this Tribeca film festival for like 12 years. We're outside with, I don't know, 14 speaker systems or something. And, uh, every change that I made, I would leave and walk around and go, okay. And at least I would confirm that I wasn't, you know, configuring something without configuring it or whatever. Um, but I think that process is really important so that you understand what's really going on. I think like, and you guys had a great talk with Dave Ratt a couple of weeks ago, and that, you know, he's a prime example of that. It's, you know, absolutely, it's about listening, but it's about understanding what you're really, really listening to. There you go. So uh, let's tell us about the book, man. This is, this is, this is cool. <laughs> well, so the, um, uh, so in the mid nineties, that's when I, the first edition of my, uh, original book came out, which is called in those days. Oh, and I'm, I'm funny. I just got this scanned. I'm going to post it online because it's kind of hilarious now, the sort of a, uh, historical document now, as soon as I get caught up, I'm going to stick it on my blog. But so in the mid nineties, I wrote this control systems for live entertainment. And back then, you know, control ethernet's in there, but it's maybe, I don't know, a few pages, uh, it might be a small chapter or something. Um, because back then, like Ethernet was just starting to come in the business and all that, but all these low-level control things like serial connections and uh, you know just basic sort of I/O uh, interfacing and all that was a really low-level tweaky thing, and you really had to understand you know binary pretty well and hex and things like that to really get into it. Um, so I wrote a first edition of that with a publisher in like mid '90s, and then I did two more editions of that, and then uh, the publisher who really like the, by the third edition, they really, they didn't do anything to market it. And they were, you know, they, they weren't happy with the sales. And I'm like, okay, well, will you give it back to me? Cause I always kept the copyright, but they had the, the uh, publishing rights and they're like, yeah, I'm like, okay. And that was, I was, I was sad for like a day and then turned out that was like the best thing I ever did. So, uh, <laughs> so then I did two more editions of that book. That's still current. It's still the second one's still for sale. Um, and there's so that's a kind of comprehensive, you know, it's 450 pages or something, and really does, uh, you know, covers control for like everything on a show. And so, of course, during that time period, over those like five editions of that, uh, Ethernet has be- gone from being a few pages in the book to being like three or four chapters in the latest edition. Um, and then, uh, but I had always sort of kept aside streaming and things like that, because in the early days, it really was kind of a different thing. If you're working with Cobranet and stuff like that, that's running on like an ethernet infrastructure, but wasn't IP based and all this stuff. So it wasn't really kind of, you know, converged onto one platform. And then what's happening is part of this whole, um, the, uh, you know, the whole like kind of evolution and maturity of technology I was talking about is that now, you know, if you're going to move bits around, the way to do it is Ethernet, right? There's just, there is some serial, there is a few of these things left around. Uh, and then also now the protocols have gone from things like DMX and MIDI from the 80s, where, you know, the document uh, defined, you know, the wiring and the meaning of the bits all in, in one document. So now like any protocol you're going to build today, unless it's a very low level, you know, piece of hardware or something is going to just be, Oh, here's the protocol and it's running on IP and ethernet, right? That's just the way it is. And so sort of recognizing that I figured this summer, um, cause I was really, you know, with the whole COVID shutdown has been really kind of brutal for 
teachers because we had to move all our hands on stuff somehow online in the middle of the semester. And we're still struggling with that because we have no resources or way to do it. Um, but so with that, I'm like, hey, I should, I'd been thinking for a while to sort of extract out, you know, the networking chapters from the big book. And, uh, and then that, <laughs> there's a long, boring story about how Amazon derailed that uh, simple product. Well, it's yeah. maybe boring to you, but it's, it's the funniest of your blog posts. It's hilarious. I hate to take pleasure in your misfortune, but it's laugh out loud, ridiculous funny. So yeah. I, I, that's my vote. <laughs> yeah. And people can go read it, but the, in the, in the short version is that like Amazon, they had a service called create space, which I was using to self publish. That was great. And then it was using Amazon distribution. Then Amazon absorbed the whole thing and like offshored and contracted it. And now, so the, the, end of the story is that my book which they had printed in various versions for what seven years or something through two editions uh now i made like i changed like 12 words in it basically trying to remove you know the the older references to like master and slave trying to update it for modern times with that and that change triggered this nightmare where the book is still in purgatory and i can't even get my isbn back from them so uh, eventually I'm just going to like kill off that version, publish it through uh, Ingram or the, my current publisher and put it back up. But I kind of had to like give up. And then I restarted from scratch on the new, the new book in about July. I was hoping to have it all done by Labor Day, but Amazon uh, had other plans for me. And then, but anyway, <laughs> I finally got it all done and went through this through a different printer. And um, now until the end of the year in the U S uh, rational acoustics is the only one selling printed copies. I'm going to enable uh, international distribution shortly. I just have been so overwhelmed. I haven't had time to do it. And then eventually it'll be up on Amazon and stuff, but I'm just trying to minimize that. But so the new book, basically, it's extracted from the old book, but uh, completely reorganized and expanded. And there's an entirely new chapter at the end uh, uh, outlining my network uh, design process. Um, Because I'm... And it's all from a show perspective. So the idea is written for people in our industry who, like me, are not usually into very like abstract, you know, kind of things um, that you can't see. You know, we're, we're there's not a whole lot of. Uh, I mean, people generally in our field tend to be more comfortable with cables than uh, some deep thing that you can't see. Um, so that's the approach I take is kind of a bottom up approach where we kind of start with the wiring and go up through IP addresses and then talk about how uh, you connect to the systems and everything. So the big difference is the new one is smaller. And uh, and Michael made, uh, made a joke before, but he was the copy editor for me, which was great. Um, and the uh, the new edition is smaller size and 150 pages than the other one was like 450 pages. So in the new version, I don't really I don't talk about any protocols except for IP and TCP and things like that. So I don't talk. I talk. I reference you know Dante and uh, uh, ABB and uh, you know ACN and those these types of things. But those are all covered. Well, not Dante, but the control ones are covered in my other book. But now I think for the most part, uh, end users don't need to know the low level details that we did in the eighties and nineties, where you basically had to work in like hex and wire things, you know, pin by pin in order to get it to work. Now we have the stable, mature platform ethernet and IP. Um, and now we're just operating at a higher level on top of that. And most of the really arcane details of that have been handled, uh, for us by our product developers. And so now, um, those things are like, we're now being able to use it rather than have to, again, like I was saying before, we don't have to invent the tools as much anymore. We can kind of use them. So all that's reflected in this where, but I still think there's some things about networking that you should understand in order to just build a a solid platform. And then if you're, the idea of the book is that this is sort of, and that's why it's called introduction in the title, right? This is the introductory thing. It can get you to a spot where you can build a network that'll work for most applications. And then from there, if you want to go more in depth into, you know, like Dante training or control systems, you're doing scenic automation or lighting systems or whatever it is, all of those now share a common sort of network foundation. So I'm just trying to like help explain the, the common network foundation. And then from there, you can build and go into depth into whatever area you're interested in so that's sort of the idea uh sort of the idea of the book and of course it took longer than i thought but it is out now 
and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of really excited to kind of get it out uh, into the world. Well, actually, we're doing a giveaway, y'all. So if you go to SignalToNoisePodcast.com, which is our very fancy new website, by the way, uh, Chris did a good job on that whole thing. And thanks to Sam over at Personal Web for building it for us. Um, you've got a, a little form you can fill out. Uh, tell us why you want it. And uh, John's going to pick and uh, you will receive a copy of John's new book. So so check it out, everybody. We encourage you to to uh, go fill the form out. Chris Leonard. <laughs> so I want to I go back to something else. I stuck out me on your, on your resume here. Um, so Blue Man Group. Uh, you, you mentioned some of the Blue Man oh, Group yeah, tubes man. in Chicago. What uh, What was your involvement there? Well, it's actually funny that I, uh, uh, so in 19, this is how old I am. So when I moved here in 1990, I was uh, in, in, here to New York. Uh, I was in a little theater company and we actually had, we did a summer cabaret uh, where the blue men came through when they were still caterers. So it's, uh, that's how long I've seen those guys. Um, yeah, I was working for an amazing guy named uh, George Kindler um, and sadly died, I guess, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and any interesting project in Vegas from uh, the 90 early, from the 80s through his death, whenever that was, 2000 something, uh, he was involved with it. So there's Fremont Street Experience. I, I actually met him working on that Buccaneer Bay project. Um, so I was working for him. And uh, somehow, I don't know, maybe it came to me or whatever, but through the company, we got a call that they just needed some help kind of uh, helping out clean up their sound system there because it had been uh, installed by whatever. I don't even remember the issues anymore, but one way or another, the people that had put it in were not involved anymore. And that was a really fun project because I went out there and we basically just sort of cleaned up and documented the system. Like it was all solid foundation. And sometimes in those organizations, um, you know, these things just happen where it becomes sort of unworkable. So we cleaned up that whole thing and, uh, and helped them automate it a little bit with some of their, God, I guess that was, uh, I have to go back and dig out the paperwork. Um, I think we were running SFX back in those days, uh, the, the software, uh, sound effects playback software, uh, which is still around, but they, you know, QWeb obviously is dominating that world now. Um, and we made a redundant uh, control. This is all like slowly coming back to me. Uh, we made a redundant uh, uh, playback system form with a shared go button. That was all, I think that was, must've been through MIDI all isolated out. Um, so you press one go button, it would fire both machines, and then there was a switch on the other side that you could cut over if the sound effects happened, uh, uh, you know, if one of the systems crashed. I think that was the main reason we were calling in there. But yeah, that was a that was a really fun project. And uh, now they've been, uh, they were bought by Cirque, and then the, um, Cirque, of course, is bankrupt. But the, uh, I, the people I've been talking to inside Cirque are all, you know, pretty, you know, confident that this will... Uh, uh, everything will be back eventually. There you go, Chris. Did you get your, your blue man itch scratched? <laughs> I, I have, I have a star Wars itch. Oh, yeah. okay. Have you, uh, there, there's a, um, Lucas? there's a medicine for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Oh, so no, I don't think I ever met him, but I, there, the, I probably like one degree of separation from him because the guy that I work for, uh, Brand Farron, like we were a competitor in the eighties. We were a competitor to IOM. Uh, so we were doing feature film effects. They were much bigger than us, of course, but, uh, we were around at that time, but we did have, uh, Brian De Palma came through the shop and the, I was working on this movie called, um, Oh yeah. Called, we worked in this movie called the Manhattan project, but I was also worked on little shop of horrors, which was the, uh, the movie was shot in England yeah. and uh, I met Frank Oz on that when he, we were looking at this brilliant engineer and I uh, probably the smartest person I ever known in my life. Just a genius was where it was such an amazing time to work with this guy. And so there was a, so how long ago it was, there was a movie over there with some film in it on, we were in the uh, Pinewood studios in, in uh, outside of London and there was a, a movieola with some film threaded up through it. And we're like, oh, what's this? And we were, we're like bored. And we turned it on and uh, we start running it. And then Frank Oz comes over and pulls, rips the plug out of the wall um, because it turned out this like no one was supposed to see this footage yet. It was like the uh, we shot two different endings for the movie. And I think now finally the, the original one we shot uh, is on like the director's cut DVD is an extra. 
um, not somewhere like plants take over the world and stuff. Um, but I got to go over there twice to do that. We did one and they didn't like, it wasn't our, our work was fine, but the, uh, it just tested badly. So we went back and did it again. And it's funny, I, there's an amazing magic show, uh, here in New York called, uh, oh man, I'm going to blow the name. Uh, it's Derek Delgadio. And I think it's in and of, it's, in and of, in and of itself. I'm, people should Google it. And, um, Frank Oz was a director of that and he was sitting in the theater and I, I, I almost went up to him to tell him that story, but like the house lights were going out and I couldn't do it. But, but yeah, uh, that's probably the director wise closest I ever got to that. Uh, Rick Moranis too. Holy cow. Yeah. Like, yeah, he was in it. He's a very nice guy. So one of my favorites. Yeah. And he just, he basically retired from the whole business. I don't know if you saw, he just got attacked on the street in New York, uh, like a month ago. Yeah. Like, retired from the terrible. business and just to hang out with his kids basically. Yeah. What what a cool like what a yeah. cool dude. Bob and Doug McKenzie retired. Yeah. And now he gets beat up in New York. Way to, <laughs> way to, way to go, guys. <laughs> oh man. John, thank you for your for being with us and, and talking with us. This has been really cool, man. We appreciate it. Oh no, absolute pleasure. And you guys, this really is a great podcast. And I've I've been able to listen to a few and I'm waiting for like the dark times of December, January to go back through the whole uh, archive. So uh, but yeah, it really was great. Thanks very much. 